Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Heiss. Hello, everyone. We have Justin Bennett. Hey, folks. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Another quick reminder, go check out the DevRev. I did take a week off for Thanksgiving, so it's not that hard to catch up. Um, we have a special guest this week, and that's Max. And Max, how do you say your last name? That's Desiatov. Desiatov. See, I wouldn't have even gotten close. This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendo UI. Um, now, do you want to introduce yourself real quick and then we can dive in and talk about GraphQL and Bash on REST? Yeah, sure. So I'm a software consultant uh, currently working in Cambridge, UK, and I mostly focus on uh, full stack applications uh, using TypeScript and Swift for that. So Swift for native iOS apps, and uh, I have a few clients who need backends for those apps and web apps. And for those web apps, I use React. And in general, um, the usual task is to build different APIs uh, for for the client apps to communicate with the backend, and uh, yeah, that, that that that's that's an interesting experience where I started to see uh, patterns, and uh, especially when using different REST APIs, and uh, wanted to publish something about it. That's uh, that's how I ended up uh, writing something uh, about this experience and uh, how. Uh, GraphQL changed and simplified a lot of stuff for me. Nice. Now, we've talked about GraphQL on here before. So let's just get a really brief overview of what it is. And then what I'd really like to talk about with this is, it sounds like you made some transitions from REST to GraphQL. And I'm curious how that went. Um, In terms of transitions, uh, there are different ways you could approach one. Uh, specifically, uh, one of the examples is uh, I have a REST app built with uh, the backend was built with Node, and specifically I used at that time SalesJS, which automatically builds uh, REST API from Blueprints. And uh, if you use uh, their their ORM uh, when you create a let's say a model, it automatically creates a table in the database and automatically creates a, uh, let's say, uh, an endpoint for that model. And you end up with a lot of different interesting use cases like validation, pagination, and stuff like that. And especially with those edge cases, it gets a little bit complicated. So on the client side for that, I used Redux. And so it's a transition through different stages of trying different different libraries and wrappers around Redux, like Redux Saga, and there are there were there are different tools for promises and stuff like that. But by that point, I already had about I already heard about GraphQL, and it was it really seemed like a good fit, like it could solve some of the problems I had with relationships or some of the validation things, some of the validation bugs that I stumble, stumble upon frequently. So as uh, that application, it already used Redux, it already used TypeScript, 
Apollo seemed like a good fit. I especially like the fact that Apollo, uh, well, at least at that time, uh, they stated that explicitly it was built on top of Redux. And it was quite a good fit in terms of I could rewrite components one by one from uh, Redux and Redux Saga to Apollo. And uh, that's basically how it went. On, on the back end, I stumbled upon a great library uh, called PostGraphile, which is a middleware which automatically generates GraphQL schema from your Postgres schema. And so the only thing I needed uh, to do besides uh, that is to switch from SalesJS slowly from their ORAM to, to attaching this middleware to the Postgres schema. The GraphQL schema was uh, generated automatically. And uh, as soon as I was ready on the client side, I took one component, switched it to using Apollo instead of Redux, and proceeded with one component to another. And that, that's, that's how first experience with GraphQL went. So I see that as a common like migration strategy. So like with the REST API, you're defining an endpoint that like has a whole entire resource. And GraphQL, you're defining these, uh, you could make them, you could say they're analogous to a resource, but like these uh, data types that you can query like individual fields from. Um, so a lot of times when I see people moving from uh, REST to GraphQL, it's like very incrementally. It's like, I'll take this little piece of a resource and I'll make this available via this uh, GraphQL client and like slowly over time, just reduce the amount of uh, calls that we're making to uh, REST endpoints. The experience with REST endpoints is, is uh, really interesting. Uh, w- when I started uh, working with front-end, uh, it was uh, already REST. I don't know like which, I didn't feel in my skin which problem REST was solving from before. People talk about SOAP days and stuff like that. So I already entered like in the REST. I had a chill uh, on my spine when you said SOAP. <laughs> I built that pain. REST is so much nicer. Yes, yes. But uh, REST has had its pains too. Like I remember uh, the migration that I worked with uh, generated like 12, microser- 12 different microservices in, in the e-commerce company I was working uh, back in Brazil. And I needed to, to do all, all that or- orchestration of 12 different resources, posts, gets everywhere. Like every page load would need like five, six, seven requests to the server, like with different uh, verbs and stuff that could be parallel stuff that need to, to, to wait for others to, to finish. So I, I know it solved a lot of problems from before. One thing that I like about REST is that it's, like it's, it's simple most of the times, <laughs> some APIs. There is one API that you talk about, the Dropbox API that you talk about in your, in your uh, post, Max, that has like the custom header stuff. Could you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so basically, to give you a little bit of context and my opinion on this, uh, in terms of REST, REST in general, I think a very interesting point here is that REST is not a standard. It does not have a spec. It's just a set of conventions, especially compared to GraphQL. Well, with uh, SOAP, I personally haven't worked with SOAP. I only know something like that existed and it relied on XML. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a spec for that. But in terms of REST, I stumbled upon so many different implementations of uh, pagination. Uh, Different people do validation differently. 
like from every big company, even if you, um, one thing is when you're working in an isolated siloed app, but when you need to integrate with different REST APIs from third parties, especially big third parties. So one of the use cases I had is integrating with Dropbox. Um, they have their REST API documented, but even within their own API, I have not seen a single consistent uh, strategy for encoding different parameters. So there is one REST endpoint that requires you to pass the parameters uh, through uh, the URL encoding. Uh, there is a different endpoint, like when you upload a file, you, you need to, and you have some metadata for the file, you need to specify that to encode that as JSON first and stick that into a custom header. And I understand why that's done that way, but it still clearly seems like a hack. If it, it seems like if REST was a spec, a well thought out from ground up, this use case could have been somehow specified. Um, so, so this specific use case is that you have some binary data and you uh, chuck this uh, binary data into the payload and there is no kind of room left in the payload to specify metadata or there are multi-part form uploads and stuff like that, which is not related to, uh, to REST in, in any specific way, as far as I know. So they found this workaround for uh, writing that metadata in, as JSON and custom headers, which is quite interesting, but it proves the point that like there are some conventions, but you can choose not to follow them. And this is clearly obvious when you use uh, multiple different uh, REST APIs, when you, especially when you consume when you consume those APIs. And yeah, in in that app, this was an app using uh, this is another app for a client which uh, had its own REST API with its own set of conventions. It consumed Dropbox API uh, using the whole another set of conventions and JSON uh, JSON metadata embedded in headers. It also consumed Google Drive API, which is REST API, by the way, which is a completely different thing and encodes fields differently, flash requests work differently. So yeah, it, it only proves the point that conventions can be very different across different teams and developers then choose to follow them or not to follow them. And this makes stuff even more, <laughs> even more interesting, I'd say. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Something I hadn't thought about is just the fact that GraphQL is a spec and has a clearly defined specification that it makes it more consistent, I guess. Uh, granted, still people can do things in their own way. Like, so GraphQL doesn't tell you, here's the right way to do like pagination, right? So from GraphQL API to GraphQL API, maybe things like that are handled differently, but you can see some pretty vastly different things in the rest world. So like, you know, they're like more, I want to say formalized, but maybe that's, that's a poor term. Like, uh, what is it? Hadios where it like gives you like links to all your references that you're, uh, querying or whatever. So if you're like referencing a resource from an endpoint, then you also have a link to that associated ring, uh, endpoint. So like if you hit GitHub and you're like, getting an issue and then somebody made uh, a comment and like that user is associated to it like chaos would give you like a url back to the user resource or whatever but what that kind of looks like is pretty varied across apis so yeah that can be a that can be a pain i so, agree 
that, that is, uh, so wants to follow up on, um, let's say, pagination can be done differently in GraphQL, but at least you have, um, you, you understand that pagination can be done in a trivial way by passing parameters in a GraphQL query. That let that be a page, a limit of items on a page, while with REST, even a way to encode those parameters can vary widely across different APIs that I have seen. And uh, this also, these parameters need to be encoded and also validated, which uh, also kind of reminds me of a different problem that I stumbled upon with REST APIs. Uh, types are just not validated by default. I've consumed APIs where uh, there was a uh, an endpoint which uh, passed uh, booleans as proper booleans, JSON booleans, but there was another endpoint within the same API that passed booleans as uh, zeros and ones for some reason. It probably consumed some. It probably done some type conversion on the backend, but that was that was quite an interesting point. And so with pagination as well. With GraphQL, you specify pages and int, the limit is an int, and you can't just uh, stick in some something weird into those parameters. Or at least uh, if you if you are using a good uh, implementation on the client and the backend, uh, it will complain uh, during validation. While with REST, you will only discover that uh, if some of the parameters were badly encoded, you will uh, if you haven't done client validation, you'll get something weird from the backend. And sometimes backend just ignore those parameters and and just uh, let's say if you've uh, for some reason you've put some weird symbols into a page parameter and the backend will just uh, not be able to parse it, but then it might just ignore it and send uh, a different page or the default page zero. Uh, I've seen I've seen different scenarios. Well, with GraphQL, I think the the workflow is a little bit more standardized in terms of it. It inclines developers, it's such a trivial thing as pagination, to encode in a simple way. So uh, would you say, for, from this conversation that we have, would you say that one of the biggest benefits of GraphQL is this, it's a, it's a more uh, restrict set of conventions, of communication? So if it's a more restrict set of conventions, that means that different GraphQL endpoints will be more or less like we'll interact with them more or less the same way? Um, yes. Uh, it, formally, it wouldn't be an endpoint. Uh, as GraphQL uses the, sa the same endpoint. Uh, well, from a, if, if we say an endpoint is just a single URL, yeah, you, you have that slash GraphQL uh, URL, uh, as far as I understand. It is a convention uh, to use that slash GraphQL URL that you send queries and mutations to. I'm sorry, I was talking about like if I'm if I'm interacting with like GitHub GraphQL or Dropbox GraphQL or other services. Do you think that this set of constraint would lead to a to a to a cleaner experience than when we had like REST APIs that could be like very different from one another? Yes, I wouldn't be even surprised if someone invents an extension uh, or proposes an extension to the GraphQL spec related to pagination, uh, which is a quite specialized case. Uh, but still, it would make sense. Uh, and also, I've seen um, some of the conventions in, uh, in, in the different tools we use for GraphQL. So I think especially it is quite beneficial that we have this spec. 
and implementations try to follow that spec. So if someone invents a great way to encode those uh, those parameters for, let's say, pagination, uh, they are free to make a proposal for that spec for the community, for GraphQL community to discuss the proposal and uh, it could be added to the spec and then it's just up to the implementations to follow that. And I think pagination clearly makes, makes some sense. It's just very trivial use case where you have a list of uh, items of the same type and you would like to consume them or to iterate them through a, just a subset of that list. I mean, I think the this having a common spec is like a good solid point. But I mean, at the end of the day, the real the real benefit of GraphQL, in my opinion, is data modeling. Um, so it, it's interesting when you think about like at an, a very abstract level, like GraphQL, you're you're modeling these types. You're, you're you know you're modeling like a user type or user interface, and then the user has like a name and a uh, email or whatever, and and REST, you'd have that same sort of data model, right? You might have a user endpoint where you can like pass user ID, and then you get like the same data back. But REST is like giving you this whole resource, and any relationships that you need are going to be on a different endpoint, so it's a different API call. Whereas like when in GraphQL, when you're consuming the data models, the the kind of view of your data models is is separate from like the data themselves. So you have your GraphQL schema, where you're defining your types and your interfaces, and then your queries just kind of selectively pull the things out that you need. So it's that idea of separating like how the data is defined versus how the data is consumed. I think that's the one challenge with REST is like how it's defined and how it's consumed are so like intertwined. Like sometimes you might make a decision in a REST API. It's like, we're going to add a field to this user resource um, not because it's actually a part of the resource, but because for performance reasons or for uh, ease of our clients or for whatever, it's just easier to put it here than it is to put it on some other resource. Um, so you end up like muddling up your uh, your actual data models or your, your resources for client viewability reasons. And it's like that separation between what your data is and how you consume it is what I think is like truly the power of GraphQL. Um, yep, I, I completely agree with that. There are a few caveats, uh, though. Uh, if you add, if you have a, a very deep tree of fields uh, and uh, a few relationships, and uh, maybe those relationships aren't very trivial, um, it's up to the backend to optimize that. But also, it clearly makes sense to uh, sometimes for the backend to add different queries. Um, uh, to make them available on the schema, which are a bit more optimized. So I think I think it's still in terms of iteration time. It's it it is great. Uh, it is a great thing for clients. Something's being added uh, to to the view. Uh, you need some field to be displayed. You know it's available on the GraphQL schema. You add it there. You get it there. You don't need to go to well, with REST, the alternatives are uh, you make a separate REST API call, a GET request, and then you reassemble the data from these different endpoints. Or you go to the backend people if you are a front-end developer, or if you are a full-stack developer, you go to the backend source code and 
just add that field on the REST endpoint or add some way, again, maybe conventional, maybe non-conventional, but way to pull relationships in different way. Or maybe I've seen some people um, provide a uh, parameter on get requests uh, where you can specify the fields you would like to pull. But still, again, it is just conventions. Uh, you may follow them, you may not follow them. It's up to you. For that, uh, GraphQL clearly provides a unified way. Um, well, still, with, with the main caveat that you have to keep the performance impact in mind if you traverse deep relationships. But that can still be optimized with no, with no loss uh, in terms of... Um, uh, it would still look to the client in the same way. Maybe you do a different query, or maybe it would be a uh, different query, but which returns the same type. And utilizing GraphQL fragments, for example, you could reuse those fragments across different queries. Another interesting uh, result of this set of conventions that and types and everything that the schemas and types and these conventions that GraphQL brings. It, it makes it easier to, to make really interesting tools, right? So what, like, which tools have, have been using to develop, to interact with your endpoints? So the one that I mentioned previously and the one I enjoy particularly, which I think transformed the way I prototype uh, apps, uh, especially <laughs> being a full-stack developer, but I think it would allow many, many front-end devs to just become, uh, when they are prototyping some app or if they would like to try something, they, they still, uh, PostgreSQL file would allow, it would allow uh, these people to build uh, quite quickly something simple or even build a full-fledged app uh, like I've done previously for a few of the clients. So if you have some SQL knowledge, uh, you just spin up a Postgres instance, uh, model your data in SQL, or uh, model the data in some relational way. Uh, there are plenty of tools for Postgres that allow you to just use some user interface to add, to add tables and columns, add them, some types and validations, I think. Uh, that, that's much easier. You, you don't need to be a, a DBA to make a, a nice performing uh, little simple database. That's quite easy these days. Uh, you set up a PostgreSQL file, which is literally, you can use it as a standalone command line app. You only need to specify the connection details to the PostgreSQL database. It will automatically generate a GraphQL schema from that database. Uh, queries, mutations, uh, mutations for adding rows to those tables, uh, deleting rows, updating rows. It will automatically generate all of the types. It also automatically maps if you do want to get into something more advanced. If you have a Postgres view, for a, a use case here, for example, if you have some different relationships, and this query just the automatically generated query uh, because those queries, SQL queries, are generated by PostgreSQL file automatically. And let's say you stumble upon a query that doesn't perform well, you can create a view on Postgres side which pulls uh, different uh, data from different tables in an optimized way. You can literally handwrite the SQL query that will be executed, and you can profile and optimize it uh, with different Postgres tools. 
And uh, that view will be exposed as a query. If that's a materialized view, you can make it materialized to you. It will be uh, exposed in the same way, where materialized views are just views that are pre-computed. Functions, SQL functions and procedures are mapped uh, automatically in the same way. If you create a Postgres is an incredibly advanced database, but still open source, quite easy to use. So if you create some custom types, uh, custom validations, uh, you could create a uh, table where you wouldn't be able to insert, let's say, odd numbers if, if, the, if the column field is introduced. That's a contrived example, but you can add a lot of interesting validations on the database side which are, by the way, can be added in a nice declarative way. You wouldn't need to write, let's say, some a specialized backend code to do those validations on the backend. And those validations would be done on the database side and would still, you would get those custom types reflected, automatically created in the GraphQL schema. And uh, on the client side, what worked really well for me is uh, Apollo and uh, Apollo Apollo CodeGen tool. So personally, I prefer to use TypeScript uh, as much as possible, either for front-end or um, Node.js stuff. So uh, Apollo CodeGen can generate uh, TypeScript type declarations from GraphQL schema automatically. So the workflow in these kind of full-stack-ish apps uh, built with PostgreSQL and Apollo is like you create a table in Postgres, it is automatically mapped to GraphQL schema. Apollo CodeGen will automatically generate an interface uh, definition uh, from that GraphQL schema. And you already have those types automatically generated on the client side. You only need to write a simple or not, not so simple, whichever you want, uh, a, a query or mutation, basically hook up the React components as needed and, and you're done. Like no need to define some specific some specific things that I had to define, but especially comparing to the way I've done it before with Redux and Redux Saga. Apollo handles a lot of stuff like asynchronous um, queries in a it, it provides a lot of let's say it simplifies a lot of that stuff. Uh, so if a query is still loading, you would you would get a nice uh, update updated property that it, it, it's still loading. Uh, so a lot of that asynchrony is already embedded in, in Apollo. I I'm, I'm, was very, very surprised by how significantly my workflow and iteration time improved, especially if you're a full stack. You can go, you can do the whole iteration very quickly. It just you've added a field in the SQL table, in the Postgres table, get it exposed on the front end in basically seconds. That's really great. One other uh, tool that you mentioned on, on, your, on your post and that we use a lot here at ZocDoc is the graphical, I don't know how to pronounce that, GraphQL with an I in the middle. <laughs> yep, yep, graphical. I, I, I call it graphical. I'm not sure if that's a recommended way to pronounce it. <laughs> that's right. So yeah, here like it's so it's so easy to just discover like stuff like to build your to build your query, start building there, and and then like bring it to your application. That's also like really good as a discovery tool. It's 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 really easy to to start uh, querying your your server, right? Yeah, I personally find GraphQL just a fantastic way to develop GraphQL apps. Uh, a PostgreSQL automatically embeds um, a gr graphical instance within. Uh, so as soon as, even when the 
simplest scenario where you spin up a, a Postgre file instance and it looks into your Postgres database. It shows you a URL, which you can navigate to in your browser. You open that URL and you have a graphical instance with uh, the schema you had in Postgres automatically rendered. So you can see fields added in the real time. Uh, PostgreSQL quite nicely does this live reload thing where it monitors the Postgres uh, schema changes. So you add, you've added a field to Postgres and you, in graphical, you see those fields added. And just a simply, I think, killer features in a lot of scenarios is that um, in Postgres, you can add some documentations to tables and columns. So for example, even in a distributed team, let's say a backend developer or a DBA, whoever on that side adds some comments to like, this uh, field is indexed in that way, or this, field, uh, this column in a view links to that column. You add those comments and PostgreSQL automatically pulls those comments from the Postgres database and attaches them to GraphQL schema uh, so that on in and graphical renders those comments and that documentation. So th this documentation that has been written on the database side is automatically rendered in a nice way in graphical and you already see the documentation uh, in, within your GraphQL schema and graphical, uh, which nicely renders that. Sounds amazing. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Discoverability is definitely a huge thing. Just going back down to the types thing, um, so kind of pulling this back to just how like it all relates to React. So at Artsy, we use, we use Relay instead of, um, of Apollo, but I mean, the same basic premise. But we use a type generator as well, right? So you have types that are generated based off of like what your query is. So in, in Relay, you often break your, your queries down into like smaller fragments, and then a component will map to a fragment. So in GraphQL, like a fragment is just like a, a partial of a query or something is, is an easy way to think about it. That's probably not a, a completely accurate representation. But what's interesting is that we'll have a React component and in the same file below that, you can see the actual data requirements for that component. And the types interfaces is generated in such a way that when you're accessing the data in the React component, it's all type checked. So it's like, if you know the schema is providing a string and you're querying for that thing, and then you try to you know pass it to a function that that takes an in, or a number, then it's going to like you know give you an error or whatever. And that workflow has just been phenomenal because like we talked about validations earlier in on our conversation. It's like you know you might have a REST API point that says yeah I give you a number most of the time, and then you know you had to have client side validation to like check to make sure that's right and you know you hope that you get it right so like that can all be really really challenging uh but like with GraphQL like it makes it pretty simple to like define your types on the server like what they return and then on the client you can have a clear relationship between what your UI is and what your data requirements are and then that whole thing can be like typed all the way down it's just it's one of the most amazing developer experiences I think I've ever had. It's just that that idea of like, I am confident that this type is the same all the way across the system is is just pretty crazy. 
This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. The other thing is, you know, you mentioned kind of having that documentation, that level of communication. And a lot of groups have the, they have the backend team and the front end team. So if one of those teams changes the expectation, you know, either the backend team says, you know, you expected a number, but now this is a daytime or, you know, something else, everything breaks. And so with GraphQL, the, the contract is built into the protocol and that's really handy. Yep. Yeah, I, I and now I have a, a another question about it is I, I'm working in production for like a year with a with GraphQL, but we only work like in the read side. What about the write side? What about mutations? How 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 do mutations work? So, in either way, uh, either you using PostgreSQL file where the, the mutations are automatically generated or uh, you have defined the GraphQL schema manually on the backend. Both mutations and queries are mapped by so-called resolvers, GraphQL resolvers, uh, where for every field, there is a resolver that gets the data from somewhere and uh, returns the value of this field. And same for the mutation. Um, so. There are two basic types in GraphQL, embedded types. One is query, uppercase Q query, and another type is uppercase M mutation. And basically, whatever you write in the GraphQL other than uh, type definitions and schema definitions are either queries and mutations, which actually are fields on these query and mutation basic types. And uh, you basically have a tree of these types embedded with, within other types and uh, through different fields. From that perspective, mutations map uh, quite nicely. And uh, by doing a mutation, you're actually querying a mutation type and uh, you can specify what different fields you expect in response. But as far as I understand, there is uh, it is implied. Uh, uh, wouldn't be surprised if it is mand- mandated by the spec. The fact that mutation changes something something on the backend. So I imagine a custom a custom resolver on the backend uh, would uh, update a specific field uh, based on the parameter and return different fields. And uh, uh, within the schema. Uh, a mutation, for example, uh, let's say have you have a to-do list and your mutation is create to-do item. This mutation still have a still has a result type, which uh, I think it would make sense in the simplest scenario to be the to-do item that you've just created. So you populate the different fields with the mutation parameters, and most likely 
on the client code you'd like you'd want to query the resulting fields maybe an id i i could imagine a lot of scenarios when you create an item on the client you don't have a unique id for that yet you get it from the back end uh so usually it would make sense to populate the fields for that to-do item and get the id uh, for that item created on the back end so that you can store that id or match it to the list of displayed items and it's the same thing with updates and uh, other mutations deletions but i think <laughs> these these mutations now we get to conventions and this is this is what i've seen this is the convention that i've seen that postgraph uses it creates one query uh, get let's say uh, going with the to do list example uh, the query is uh, get all of the to dos it's actually two queries get all of the to-dos paginated or get one to-do by ID. Then there are three mutations, delete, uh, delete, update, and create. Uh, so that maps quite nicely to the to create, read, update, uh, delete uh, in REST, uh, also known as CRUD. But it's only a convention. Uh, you could create... Uh, uh, you could create a, a mutation in your schema that does whatever. Uh, I would expect something that uh, deletes uh, uh, something that deletes, let's say, um, an image that's not available, some some kind of file that's not available on your schema directly, or it's not available in the type. You don't have to. That it is a convention, but the spec does not specify how many mutations and how many queries you should have for any specific type. So what I've seen. Uh, Sometimes uh, I had to create mutations where I've uh, where I where I needed batch creation. So as far as I remember, or at least uh, the version of Postgraph that I used, it does not create uh, mutations for batch creation. Uh, and I had to, in some scenarios, I had to create hundreds of items at the same time. And so for that, I even had to write a custom resolver, which which is still Postgraph if you can't map uh, to SQL, if, if, if you aren't satisfied with how uh, it maps to SQL queries directly, you can still wrap a custom resolver around it. So in my scenario was to create a custom resolver for that mutation uh, for a batch insert uh, where I wanted to, where I needed to efficiently create hundreds of items at a time. And uh, that's quite a good use case. Uh, but in general, it's just the the mutations you have and whether they do or don't match your queries. Uh, we are at the stage of conventions here. I, the spec does not say anything about that, as far as I know. Yeah, because one scenario I had in my previous e-commerce uh, work uh, was uh, we needed to implement like a buy later feature right in the cart page. So we needed to like get the cart and then we need to delete a line from the cart and then we need to post a, resor a new resource of the bilater endpoint and then like retrieve the new bilater list and then retrieve the new cart and things like that. So I could do all of that with like one mutation, right? I could do a mutation which is like uh, save to bilater with a line ID or product ID and then it would update all the tables and resources necessary on in one only one mutation, right? 
Yep. Yep. I could also imagine some ways where you'd like to have items uh, created, generated programmatically. So it could be a mutation, let's say, create test data or create uh, something incrementally, create from 5.5.2 do items from a template. And in terms of test data, uh, there is also an interesting thing uh, I have not used personally, but I know it's quite useful for uh, a lot of people to use called schema stitching, where you have different GraphQL schemas coming from different services and uh, you can merge them if there are no conflicts. So I could imagine a different schema created just for testing that is not exposed for production. Uh, having a mutation create test data in this way or delete test data in that way. And uh, it could be either implemented with schema stitching or some custom resolvers, and uh, there are different approaches here. One thing that I'm wondering about, I'm going to change the topic just a little bit. So I was working on, I, I have this app that I've been working on for a while. It helps me manage all of the podcast workflows and things like that. And one of the features um, was that I wanted to hook it up to Zapier, which is a third-party automation tool. And I looked through all the documentation on Zapier, and it turns out that I couldn't find any explanation for how to hook up a graph to their service. And so I wound up just creating a couple of REST endpoints for the couple things that I wanted at the time and kind of ran with that. I'm curious, do you find that the, the adoption for GraphQL is not moving as fast as people would like? Because I was really, I, I really love the way that GraphQL kind of comes together, especially when I'm building the app. But it seems like a lot of third-party services still don't quite deal nicely with a graph system like GraphQL. Yeah, it depends how fast we want it to move. Uh, there are different expectations here. I'm personally, I'm surprised there are so many big companies already using GraphQL. Like. Uh, some of the examples that I've checked uh, when I was writing that article, and that was uh, May at that point. But uh, I've been checking some of the bigger examples, and those were GitHub, Shopify, Khan Academy, Coursera, GraphQL themselves, graphql.org, uh, their website as a huge list of users. So I think I'm also finding a lot of positive feedback from developers. And I think it depends heavily on, on that, the adoption. The companies need to be sure that GraphQL solves the problems they have and that it improves the developer productivity. They need to be certain that their developer tools are reliable enough. And I think we are at that stage. Uh, so yeah, definitely. I would. I would love. I would love uh, every big API to provide GraphQL instead of REST. Uh, it's much nicer to consume, and all of these, uh, as I mentioned, let's say Dropbox and Google Drive API in in some of the examples, they do provide REST APIs, but also they provide their custom libraries to consume those APIs, those REST APIs, and some of sometimes those libraries just use different incompatible HTTP libraries, and you get into Lot of, lots of different scenarios when using those. Well, with GraphQL, it would be great. You just have a unified way to consume those APIs. So it's great that, that there are a few examples of big companies, but I think we, have, we still have a way to go where it's going to become a default way to think about APIs. I think there are a lot of examples of GraphQL being used not just 
for API interaction, but for some local state management. So Apollo uh, itself provides uh, GraphQL API for local state management. There is also, if you're into static website generators, they currently uh, quite frequently mention, mentioned uh, that I hear uh, a static website generator called Gatsby uses GraphQL for mm -hmm. local stuff. So from within your page that is statically generated, you still pull data from GraphQL. So I think I'm seeing this upward trend. More developers uh, become introduced to GraphQL. They understand all of the caveats. Uh, the developer tools improve. The spec, I think uh, there, are a few, there are a few things that could be improved within the spec. I wouldn't be surprised if something like standard way to paginate lists uh, would be introduced that would help uh, uh, quite greatly. There are a few other caveats I could mention, uh, quite specific and technical details. But as soon as that stuff, stuff is resolved, there is, I personally don't know if there is a need to not to stick, not to stick with GraphQL as the, the default nice way. I, I wouldn't be even surprised if like uh, some of the new generation databases, uh, there are constantly something you popping up. So well, I mentioned Postgres multiple times, but there's, there are also new databases like, let's say, CockroachDB, which have, has chosen Postgres protocol as its default protocol for compatibility reason. But I wouldn't be surprised if some, let's say, hot NoSQL database comes up and it does not invent its own custom REST API or some own custom querying language. You could use GraphQL as just the default. So I definitely see the upward trend. I don't think that the wave of skepticism that I saw initially would just uh, make this all uh, die down and not go anywhere. At this point, I think GraphQL, I bet GraphQL would win uh, by becoming a default. The question is when. In a few years, in five years, maybe, Maybe everyone transitions in the next few months and because they already have this in the works, like big companies uh, like Google and Dropbox for their APIs. These are the APIs I'm concerned by developing for them. WordPress adopting GraphQL by default would definitely be a huge thing. I've seen some third-party adapters for WordPress. Gatsby um, also becomes a nice way to work with WordPress as a backend. I think... Definitely way to go. I think we're getting there slowly. Yep. It's probably important to talk about like where GraphQL falls apart though, because so it's not necessarily great for everything and for every problem. And the biggest thing that we've got to all admit is that GraphQL is, is complicated. It shifts complexity, right? So you're, you're interfacing with the client is a lot easier, but how you get data on the back end, how you manage queries and resolvers and all that stuff, that part gets really complicated. And if you get into things like you're stitching multiple services together, you're trying to figure out how to do effective caching, you're trying to like solve all these problems, things that REST does well, like caching, are not in, in GraphQL. And then you also have to think about things like we, we, this is an arbitrary queryable like tree structure of data and somebody can like make a really like infinitely complex query and bring down our servers. Like, how do we respond to that? So there's all these like really challenging problems. And when I first came across GraphQL, my first thought was like, 
this is a great internal product API. If you want to create an internal product to, to interact with web and mobile and stuff like that, and it's like your product and you control it, this would work great. But it's like, if it's public, what about all these other things? So as it gets more mature, we're seeing more solutions to these things. It's like, here's a good strategy for limiting complexity to queries. Here's a good strategy for like handling load and, you know, like using data loader for caching and things like that. But like, there's still a lot of those problems that REST have had figured out for a long time because you can just rely on a simple HTTP infrastructure that GraphQL still has got a way to, ways to go. To, to interject, the GraphQL has, some people have figured something with REST uh, and they've, it, it's still a convention for them. It doesn't yeah, yeah, mean, no, that, that's, uh, that's if true. someone figured out caching, uh, people who use REST still need to up, uh, adopt it uh, explicitly in their way. So, yes, yeah, so, so there, there are also caveats here by saying REST figured it out. It doesn't mean that it, it, hasn't been, it has been implemented in the spec, maybe in some popular libraries, yes. Yeah, um, I mean, that's fair. I, I think... I think more of what I was getting at is that the model of REST of like having a resource per endpoint makes it easier to rely on just like regular HTTP caching. And yeah, there's nuances to how that's implemented. It's just like there are, and I guess no technology is really without its drawbacks. And it's like understanding those is really important mm -hmm. to saying, is this, is this appropriate for the use case? Yeah, one thing that is not trivial in... in um, in GraphQL, I would love your input on that. Is like lo really long-term APIs, like when you need like to deprecate some fields and to change some fields. Uh, in REST, you have like the versioning, the versioning strategy that is pretty standard on REST. So, and I've I've read some 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 posts saying that like you should just never delete forever. Uh, fields in your GraphQL schemas and things like that, but that those things can grow in complexity like a lot, right? So, how do you deal with those uh, situations too? And also, of course, I would like to know like what are your pain points with GraphQL too? Yeah, um, in terms of pain points and different technical caveats that I mentioned, some of some of the few uh, that I stumble upon. And one that really has caused some problems, like literally uh, at least a couple of hours up to a day of figuring out. For example, uh, there was uh, there is no standard support for 64-bit integers in the schema. The, the the stuff that you that you get PostgreSQL post creates a 64-bit um, integer. I think it's, it creates big integer type for you, but if you haven't handled that on the client correctly, it just uh, so some of the, some of the fields that I had uh, just not having standard sixty four bit integers. It blew my mind. Why why is not why isn't that in the spec? Why are integers thirty two bit by default? This is weird. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, and I think especially for something there, there are a lot of cases where you would want to quite. Quite quickly, you'd stumble upon where just 32-bit integers just aren't enough, or some positions. I think maybe some different decimal uh, fields would make uh, sense in the spec uh, for, let's say, currency stuff, where you don't want to lose precision. And I wouldn't be surprised if people just use double for that, and they lose precision, and that causes a lot of problems. 
yeah, and, and lose money because of that, or I hope not. But these typing issues are definitely, uh, they, they cause some problems for me. Uh, so when you are aware of that, that these, that these problems exist, uh, you are ready for that and you can double check it. Yet another thing I stumbled upon basically a couple of days ago uh, is dictionary types. Um, so it makes sense to encode some things as dictionaries where you have a string key or a key in, of an arbitrary type. Uh, we actually had it uh, on the client side expressed quite nicely, wanted to map that structure to the backend, and we couldn't. We had to re-encode it into an array or some of an array of a different pair type that had a key and a value. And there are different scenarios here, but you have uh, dictionaries, objects in JSON, uh, they just aren't mapped to GraphQL. They, this is a bit weird. And I've also seen a, a couple of, I wouldn't say proposals, GitHub issues on the GraphQL spec and those, uh, the people asking about dictionaries and GraphQL support for dictionaries, those weren't addressed in a meaningful way yet. Uh, I think I think it would make sense to add something, something that alleviates these problems to the spec. In terms of the other stuff, like performance and field, field deprecations, uh, again, this is a good chance to uh, complain about how, uh, how versioning and uh, removal and addition of fields are implemented in REST, because you, you can uh, version uh, REST endpoints. But in practice, again, it's a convention. I have not seen many people doing it well. And what do you consider a REST version? Uh, do, do you use semantic versioning for that? And semantic versioning is the whole different headache. If you add a field, do you, which version do you bump? Like if, if backend people added a field or changed the type of the field on some endpoint, do they come to you and say, oh, don't use the version 173.5, use 173.6? Or how do you, how do you bump the, the version? Like some of the APIs I've seen, they just use v1, v2, v3. But I would be highly surprised if they version it on that level of granularity. I think they should. Uh, in practice, it was quite frequently where during the, even versioning during development is quite useful. Uh, backends, backend guys changed some, backend people changed something uh, on, on the backend, didn't tell us, or they, they, they just created a new version, didn't tell us, or, or they didn't create a new version. Like everyone has to have this discipline to version everything consistently. So I was quite happy when I saw a deprecation directive in GraphQL, uh, where in GraphQL schema, you can see which fields and queries and mutations are deprecated. And that, that's what I saw is a recommended way to handle that. If something's being added or renamed, uh, you de deprecate the old version and wait for the clients to stop using the deprecated version uh, or use some other strategy, I guess. But there is at least there is an embedded way to deprecate things. Uh, while with versioning, I think it, it's also a different question. Should some kind of versioning be in the spec? A trivial way to work around that is to just implement different GraphQL endpoints. Could you use GraphQL v1, v1 endpoint with one schema and GraphQL v2 with, with a different, completely different schema? If you are just tired of the baggage of deprecations, I could see people working around that, uh, that way. In terms of query complexity, a lot of this stuff could be improved with developer tools, I think. And it would be great if those tools 
for these things not to become some conventions that only some people follow would be great if a lot of this stuff would be either embedded in graphical or Apollo or Apollo server. I could imagine someone coming up with something like a shield cost, query cost, uh, or something like that. A way to, in the same way you can do for SQL, you can write analyze select query or analyze insert query, and you can get a cost for different uh, joints and stuff. Maybe it would make sense if you are doing a deep tree structure of GraphQL. On the client, that you can see, yeah, if I write that query, I, it, that would run uh, for, uh, for quite some time. Or something that at least makes people aware on the client side or makes it explicit in the schema that adding these fields or structuring your queries and mutations in a certain way makes stuff much more complicated. This is something that could be maybe something added on, on the spec side or maybe added on the developer tool. Uh, we'll see. I, I wouldn't be surprised if something like this uh, already exists, but I haven't heard of it. To go back to the field deprecation, um, I think that is a, a good thing to talk about with GraphQL in general. It's just that you can monitor the usage of a field. So you can tell when nobody else is using that field anymore. And then, you know, then you can just delete it. Yeah, yep. same for caching. Uh, I definitely saw a ton of solutions for caching. Uh, I think Apollo server does something like that. And uh, uh, yeah, you, you have a bit more flexibility here. You can cache sets, certain fields. Uh, you can uh, cache certain queries, uh, different directives. Uh, you can specify directives on your query. Uh, like if you have this in cache, yeah, return that. Uh, or always, always fetch the newest version and stuff like that. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Um, yeah, let's, let's do some picks. Justin, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I've got one pick, at least. At, at work, we have a lot of like dependencies, uh, a whole lot of like node module dependencies or whatever. So I was looking for a good way to like help us keep some of those up to date. And I stumbled across a tool called RenovateBot. A lot of people have probably heard of like Greenkeeper, which kind of does the same thing. But both of these tools, um, they'll open pull requests for dependencies that need to be updated. And you can like, you know, merge those pull requests and you get an updated dependency. Uh, RenovateBot's cool because it has like a lot of configuration that you can do. So at work, we have it scoped to like only our internal packages. So anytime our internal package gets published, then all the repos consuming it get a pull request to like update the version. And it's super, super convenient. Right now it it supports like several different languages. 
one of my coworkers and I are kind of pairing to add Ruby support. So hopefully when that gets in there, it'd be a cool thing to look at. But anyway, so it's called Renovate, but I'll, I'll drop the link. It's, it's a lot of good. And I'm rereading The Wheel of Time, and it's a great read. So if you uh, haven't read that before, you definitely should. That's me. I love The Wheel of Time. Yeah, it's so good. I read them when I was in high school, and then, you know, and then I read the books as they came out as the series ended through college and after college because it took forever for them to come out. Typically, these days, I'm on audiobooks, so I have all of them on my Audible account. And when I know I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of stuff for weeks on end, then yeah, I'll typically uh, hook up the the audiobooks and I'll just listen. It takes a few months to get through them, but yeah, great stuff. I guess that's my plus one in a long-winded manner. I'll, I'll jump in with some picks here. Uh, one of them is actually the Discord channel for the shows. So if, if people want to jump on there, I sent an email out to the mailing list and I had, I don't know, like 30 people join this morning. So I've nice. been I've been kind of uh, you know jumping in and saying hi to everybody there. I'll put a link. I think I already did, but I'll make sure that there's a link on devchat.tv for people that want to get involved there. But yeah, we're having some uh, fun conversations and just getting to know each other on there. Another project that I've been playing with lately, and it's funny because I started playing with it and then I really really got into it, and I'm spending way too much time on it. The project's called Eleventy, and it's a static site generator, kind of like Gatsby and stuff, except it's not based on React or anything like that. I've really, really been enjoying just working on that. Um, I kind of have a stealth project going, but we're so far ahead on this podcast that I, I'll just mention it. Um, I'm actually looking at switching devchat.tv over to it. And the reason is, is that we update the content basically once a week per show. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the scheduling on it, but the rest of it is, you know, pretty much ready to go. So, um, and so I'm wondering if there's a way to set Netlify to just, deploy at a certain time of day every day. And that way it won't deploy episodes until they're there or have some script that, or some some hook or something that will, when it goes to deploy, it'll check the drafts folder and move stuff out of there. I don't know. I'm, just, I'm still figuring that piece out because I don't want to release episodes early on the website, though I don't know that that would necessarily be a bad thing if we're ready to go. So anyway, uh, that's that's another thing I've been playing with. And the static site stuff is definitely an interesting problem to solve, but is a great solution for a lot of stuff. So uh, those are my picks. Max, do you have some picks for us? Yep. So my picks aren't specifically technical, although they do relate to tech. Uh, so I'd like to firstly recommend a, I, I wanted to say blog, but it's actually uh, different notes and newsletters published by Nadia Ekbal. I shared a link. Uh, I, I guess it's going to be attached to the show notes. Uh, I hope I haven't butchered the name, but the URL should be very specific. So she's working on a quite an interesting problem that I've been looking at for quite a while. I'm very interested into uh, how people, how different people approach it, which is open source sustainability. How does open source evolve? We are living in it in a, in a way where Open source has become so pervasive. It's basically public infrastructure at this point. Everything runs on open source. Quite significant stuff runs on open source. It's basically roads and bridges, which are uh, we, we don't we don't uh, finance open source with taxes. But how how do you finance open source? How how does that work? How how is this infrastructure developed? 
an infrastructure that benefits to everyone. And uh, how, how does that work? So Nadia has been researching that uh, for quite a while. It's a main topic. And she published a lot of interesting stuff about software foundations, uh, how different people approach open source crowdfunding. I'm per- personally very interested into how big companies have, uh, what roles big companies have in open source, uh, especially if you consider all these different projects come from big companies who own that technology. Uh, But I'm interested and sometimes even concerned, can a small group of people that don't belong to, that don't work to a multi-billion dollar company, can they start an open source project that's going to be used by by a lot of people? Uh, And and there are some examples, but then those projects still end up being owned by those big companies. So yeah, it's quite difficult, quite interesting topic, uh, quite philosophical in some way. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed reading that content and uh, Nadia highlighting the actual existence of the problem because we use so much open source, but we don't think where it comes from. How does that work from the society perspective? And the second pick is a talk by Julia Evans. The talk is called Building Possible Programs. Um, so I think. <laughs> quite easy to Google. And again, uh, the URL should be in the show notes, I guess. But it is a talk that inspired me a lot, where in in this talk, Julia gives an example of building a developer tool for Ruby developers from scratch. And again, this is a Ruby profiler built in open source. And where, as far as I remember, her company gave her three months of of, uh, paid time by that company to develop that that project. Basically, TLDR of the talk, there are so many uh, different niches in tech that some people haven't approached yet. The big companies haven't approached that approached yet. But these problems haven't been solved. And there is some kind of barrier that prevents from, from other people for from solving those problems. But it's still those barriers don't actually turn out to be quite high. If you look into some niche, if you specialize in something, I quite easily can find different problems that can be solved and that can bring a lot of joy and fun while, while, when they solve. And if it's open source, it's great. Uh, then everyone can benefit from it. And uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's incredibly motivating talk. Yeah, we had Juliet on and talked about RB Spy and how, how that all went. And so, yeah, uh, definitely go, uh, go and check that out. Um, curious. So, do you do a lot with Ruby, or are you more interested in the open source implications there? I, I had some very, very brief experience with Ruby. I, I do follow uh, stuff that Julia is doing, especially uh, she had a few articles about Rust. So, I follow Rust more closely. Uh, my most of my experience is okay. uh, with. Uh, Quite a lot of the stuff that I do is uh, connected with Swift and Swift. I, I think, I wouldn't say inspired by Rust, but a lot of stuff in Rust uh, gets, uh, gets something in Swift somehow. Uh, actually, I think I even saw some confirmations that some of, some of this stuff is directly inspired by Rust. So I have this interest in all these strongly typed languages like TypeScript, Rust, and Swift. And... Uh, Thanks to Julia publishing a lot of a lot of stuff about Rust. I think even Ruby Spy had some had, had some had something had some, yeah, stuff, some I think it was written in Rust. Yep. So that that's how I stumbled upon it. 
yeah. not directly related to Ruby, unfortunately. No, it's all good. Um, one other thing that folks should check out if you're looking at open source sustainability, I have conversations with uh, CodeFund, used to be Code Sponsor. Uh, I also had some conversations with Henry Sue, who works on Babel, about you know the sustainability there. Because when I had the conversation with him, he was working a full time job plus, um, you know, basically doing full time maintenance on, on Babel. I could talk about it for hours, but I won't. So. Oh yeah. So short little issue. Uh, somebody offered to take over a package, a popular package that wasn't being maintained, and made some commits to it and everything. But also <laughs> shipped some malware. So to steal people's bitcoins. Yeah. So it's been kind of a, a top of mind thing. A lot of people like jumping on the maintainers, like, why did you give this away? And they're like, I've got thousands of packages and open source is hard. Right. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Max, how do people find you online? Um, So uh, mainly I publish stuff uh, semi-regularly. I try to publish uh, monthly on my blog, which is desiatov.com. D-E-S-I-A-T-O-V.com. I'm mainly interested, as I mentioned, uh, TypeScript, strongly typed functional languages, uh, stuff that compiles to uh, JavaScript and WebAssembly, Swift as well. Uh, I currently plan to publish something on WebAssembly and uh, working on uh, WebAssembly support for Swift compiling background. So I would like to write something about that. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, which is Max Desiatov, M-A-X-D-E-S-I-A-T-O-V, where I usually, uh, again, semi-regularly post different observations on whatever is going on uh, with Swift, WebAssembly, React, TypeScript, and this kind of ecosystem. But yeah, that's me. Sounds good. Thanks for coming, Max. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great. All right. Well, we'll be back next week. See you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.